You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Mira, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode of the Evolution Exchange Podcast to discuss effective leadership. I'm joined by four senior leaders from the Sydney tech community whom will get to introduce themselves before we jump into the discussion for today. Uh, so, Praneet, if you would like to start. Sure. Thanks, Mira. Hi, everyone. I'm Praneet, working as VP of Engineering at Illuminar. Uh, been with the business for about five years. Uh, we are a Sydney-based startup, creating some really cool products in critical event management space, challenging the status quo of our crisis management industry, as we know. Uh, and I work with a team of 15 engineers who are a brilliant bunch, uh, engaging and dependable. And I'm so proud to be working with them. And uh, as for me, I am in the technology industry for over 15 years now and uh, worked in multiple industries across four different countries at various capacities. And uh, in my leadership roles, I realized that I do enjoy the challenge of uh, building teams, putting systems in place and running the whole show as a well-oiled machine. And that's the adventure and the challenge which wakes me up besides my daughter. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Love that. Thank you, Pranith. And Owen, if you would like to go next. Yeah. Hi, I'm Owen Craig. I'm the head of engineering at another Sydney-based startup called Equate. We're a strategic workforce planning platform, uh, which really helps to organisations to take their strategy and enumerate and connect it to their people so that it's not this, here's a goal, oh, let's work out how we get those people later. It's all really part of the same thing because you can't really have strategy or, or move forward without people. Um my uh, my background is as a as a software engineer, um, and similar to sort of Fred, really excited about sort of building out organisations and, and how we get there. Because fundamentally, I often say this at work, and they're probably sick of me hearing hearing me say it. Is <laughs> we're building a product, but we're also building the organisation. If we can get the organisation right, the product will end up taking care of itself. Uh, yeah, and if anyone's interested, we're constantly hiring. So. <laughs> nice little yeah. shout out, thank you, Owen. <laughs> thanks so much, and Ben. If you would like to introduce yourself, please. Hi. Uh, so my name is Ben. Uh, I am the VP of Engineering of Lendy. Uh, Lendy is a digital mortgage platform uh, in which we 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 serve people. We we support people uh, so they can go through their mortgage application journey in a self-service uh, kind of way, but also we we provide uh, support from like, you know, using brokers. So uh, we have two types of users, the customers and, and the brokers. And last year we merged with Aussie, which is I think like the biggest independent mortgage broker in Australia. And, and one of our goals uh, with this, obviously we have a massive reach now, but uh, in terms of lending, one of the things that we are we are one of our objectives is that every every uh, Aussie broker will be using the lending platform. So that that brings a lot of uh, interesting challenges in terms of uh, uh, use cases and features, but also uh, bringing uh, a lot lot more uh, users to our to our platform and and all the challenges that that, that ensue. So yeah, uh, and I think you know besides I, I love. Uh, working uh, with tech companies, I love working with people and, and managing. And and I think uh, one of the things that I enjoy the most uh, that I was thinking about, it, I think I love coaching and mentoring. I don't know why, but I do it even at the smallest opportunity with people that don't even work uh, with me. So, <laughs> and maybe I'm just lonely. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ben. And exciting times ahead for Lundy. And last but not least, Mitch, if you would like to introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah. So my name is Mitch and I work for Hanasoft and we are a boutique technology consultancy um, where we specialize in sort of financial technology services for our clients. Our clients are into sort of trading platforms around derivatives and that sort of stuff based overseas as well as uh, some local commodities trading as well, uh, which certainly does keep us busy um, solving fun problems um, and, and working out ways to lead people through all that sort of environment is sort of what, what keeps me busy. Thank you so much, Rich. And thanks everyone else for the introduction. So before we kick things off with all the questions you've put forward today, I know Ben posed one regarding first, if we could just define effective leadership and how we measure it. So Ben, if you'd like to kick things off with that. Yeah. So I, I think like, uh, you know, we can just spend the whole podcast talking about this. So I'm going to try to be <laughs> succinct. I think uh, you can take this in, in different in different facets. The way I was looking at or thinking about it is that you can start, like obviously, you know, we 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 work for companies and companies have objectives and, and companies are, you know, like they, they have uh, missions to help people, to provide products, to to do something. So I think that the first thing that, that, that I see when, when I'm like looking at a team is that, you you have to be uh, an effect uh, to be an effective leader. You need to be very clear about what the company's what the company objectives are. Then you need to go and and help uh, your team in case you 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 lead individual contributors or team leaders uh, understand those those uh, those objectives and then support enable or or you know work with them towards developing objectives themselves that are going to support the company's objectives. And then on top of that, once the people know the objectives and they're, they, you need to be sure that they are aligned, you know, like across the road, there are going to be a lot of like, you know, like in the Hercules works, like golden apples, which people, you know, are going to be uh, stopping to pick up and you need to, you know, remind them like, you know, well, there's this objective and the primary thing is here. So it's defining the work, uh, communicating the objectives, help people be aligned with the objectives. And then on top, like after that, Supporting them and and unblock, you know, like supporting them to to achieve those objectives. You know, how do you unblock them? How do you uh, surface any issues? How do you provide context or 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 you know support in terms of resources, uh, money, tools, uh, whatever the the team requires, time uh, even. Uh, and then on top of that, the other facet is that as as Owen had said in a previous conversation, on the on, on you you start you also are building an organization at the same time. So, so you need to make sure that the team that is working it, because software uh, is never finished. That's, I don't know if you ever heard that phrase. Software is never finished. It's only abandoned. So if you want to make a, a product that is going to be lasting for a long, long time and be maintainable and all that, then you also need to, to be a long-lasting team. So then you need to help build the team culture or that the team culture you know works. And, and then one, one more level is that the personal... Uh, objectives and aspirations are aligned with your company. So I'm not going to talk more about this because otherwise I'm not going to give the opportunity for everyone for everyone to talk. But I think <laughs> in a very big, big nutshell, that's how I would would look at effective leadership. Yeah, and uh, to sort of add a little bit onto that, so I draw a little bit of an abstraction there. I mean, when we're talking about effective leadership, there is a sort of metrics component here um just because i mean all of us come from a very technical background and things like that which is 
we and our teams and everyone around us are here to do something. Are we achieving that? But as you mentioned, the other part of that is are we making it so that the people who are there, because these are people, not resources, uh, are the people who are there able to actually achieve what they want to achieve as well? Because otherwise it's all very tailorist and cognitive machine. Thanks, Owen. And Mitch or Paneeth, do you have anything to add there? Well, um, in, in terms of uh, leadership, if I may, uh, effective leadership is, um, I believe that anyone can lead. It's, it's a matter of the style of leadership and how how one takes the leadership and, and what's the approach one would take. Uh, if, I would, if I would split the effective leadership into effectiveness and leadership, I would say, one is quite important, um, as as Owen mentioned, there is an aspect of of uh, managing the objectives, managing the timelines and the budgets and and the scope and and executing the strategy and whatnot. But also at the same time, one uh, needs to be clear if one needs to be effective. Leadership is, uh, we cannot manage people. I think in some ways we need to lead or influence or inspire uh, people in a sense, and hence the results will be produced accordingly. And uh, in in my view, I would say uh, leadership uh, is something which is uh, which I, I always and like the analogy of of a ship is uh, is where do you want to take the ship? Where the ship is currently? What are the currents and the tides uh, which which one would face as the ship is being steered? Right. I think in that sense, um, to me, one of the one of the important lessons what I've learned in the last six years uh, working with this position in the past roles also is that uh, one of the important factors which helped me uh, uh, to to gain the clarity of thought and 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 in execution also is anticipating the future. Uh, that is very important. Uh, what I what I thought it is it is quite an essential skill actually to improve to anticipate the future and and to tie it back to what Benjamin has, Ben has shared about uh, objectives and sort of touch. Um, knowingly or unknowingly on the OKR side of, of the world, which is measure what matters and whatnot. So because that is something which in our business, we um, uh, since the inception of business, we we strived and we attempted our best to, to, to reiterate and review our OKRs. And um, um, personally, it is, I, I found a lot of value uh, in, in having those work, uh, quarterly OKR workshops, uh, having a, a weekly OKR catch-ups with my growth, marketing, client success, and my product teams. Um, again, it brings me back to the same point, which is anticipating the future, because if I'm not aligned with the growth strategy, if I'm not aligned with the market trends and what's the customer feedback, what's coming in, I cannot really um, steer my engineering shift to be aligned with my business goals and the growth of the business going forward. Uh, hence, I, I do believe that OKRs does uh, help me to anticipate the future of the business, but also what the engineering team needs are and what it needs to be. But also there is a second aspect, what Avane shared is, uh, all this is, if, if you were to say it is more external, but is more internal, is is more on this quality, qualitative side of things which is more subjective is how do you get people to work how do you get um, how do you how do you get the best out of of people but also at the same time they feel valued they feel belonged here and they feel like uh, this is my startup i certainly feel this is my startup i think this is one great benefit uh, i get because working in a startup uh, with a 10 20 30 member uh, business uh, business uh, uh, is that uh, whatever we ship whatever we do whatever the decisions we make it's more like well, I'm part of it, and I, hence this this feeling is always there. 
which is one of my questions, which I will touch uh, touch touch upon it uh, once once that question comes back. Uh, but I think there is this internal aspect is is more uh, more in terms of knowing the leadership style. Uh, and, and being aware of the leadership style and and to review uh, again and again, getting direct feedbacks, getting uh, having one-on-one check-ins and receiving and, and get, giving feedbacks is, is one more one important thing, I think, uh, which would help or allow me to influence and, and uh, get the optimum out of my team, I would say. Thanks so much, Nathan. Love the analogy there. And Mitch, sorry, you had something to say as well. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of, what I, I had thought of saying was has already been said from the guys already, <laughs> particularly around you know, the purpose and keeping people connected to that. But then I also like to think of it from a slightly different perspective as well, um, where, where le- effective leadership or leadership in general, um, and I guess a, a way I approach it. For me, it's really about preparing and maintaining an environment for skilled professionals to thrive. Um, you set it up for them, you provide for them, you can coach and mentor and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, you're hiring very smart people. Um, and if you can provide the path for them to go down, then essentially they they should be successful. Um, you just want to clear the the roadblocks and get out of their way and let them do what they're very good at doing. Um, and that's sort of how I approach it. Um, you don't want to get stuck into the micromanaging phase because that's what's the point of you know ha- having managers or hierarchy or anything like that. What's the point of it if you're going to sit in their pocket all day? Um, just get out of their way and let them do what they do really well. Um, and if you're doing that, then I think from a measurement point of view, looking at it from a lot of that would depend. We've got startup guys here. We've got the, the slightly bigger companies in, in the lendies and that sort of stuff. And different stages of a business would be a different stage in terms of how you'd measure it. Um, the way I measure it with my team at the moment is purely how happy they are. Um, if I'm not getting dragged aside and all that sort of stuff, then I see what's going on as being successful. It's not about hitting milestones and that sort of stuff because tech stuff is hard it's hard to do and i don't think we talk about that part because people just expect us all to be magicians and make things happen um but if, if the team's generally happy and, and that sort of stuff then I, I see they're on the right path and it's successful um that, that's how i would personally measure it really good point thank you mitch and we'll jump into the main part of the discussion but great points so far so very keen to jump into these questions so this first one was put forward by Praneeth, which is what strategies or principles can support retention of autonomy and ownership particularly at scale so if you wanted to just start Praneeth, by just adding some context around that yeah sure um so the context of the question is that, as as I as I sort of briefly touched in my uh, previous sharing, is uh, we were a team of uh, seven uh, up until last month, and we are we'll be a team of fifteen in the next one week or so. We're already thirteen now. Um, it this small the size of the team gives me the flexibility and the room uh, to to uh, have the personal connection and to to have that uh, to have that. Uh, ability to to influence the team uh, so that I can derive some optimum results, but also at the same time they uh, they feel uh, that they are valued, but also they have a say in the decision making and and um, they they own not only own but also at the same time they're accountable to the results. So all this is fair and well in terms of management with a with a small team size of 15, I would say. Uh, but again, uh, to my point, I would I always love to anticipate the future and. Uh, be prepared myself as much as I can, uh, most on a self-interested basis because I don't want to be anxious a lot and I would like to keep the anxiety <laughs> levels down. So, sure. so in those, <laughs> and I would like to tap into the group genius here, especially uh, whoever has been through the journey is that 
Um, in that, when when the business is growing and when we're scaling teams, when it, when there's a point of say 30, 40, 50, and tomorrow is a matter of when when we touch about 70s and hundreds, how do we or what are there any strategies if there are, and what are the approaches can be uh, in principle to be applied so that if not this, if not we retain the same level of consistency across across to, uh, uh, the different uh, aspects of of uh, uh, team skills and team productivity and autonomy and ownership, et cetera, all those uh, all those uh, jazz. What what better ways we can make sure, but also to the point, Ben, uh, how can we measure also at the same time at scale, um, so that uh, so that uh, the the principles of of uh, team engagement and team autonomy and individual growth and individual um, uh, capacities are well served, uh, in the in turn also served by the business interests. So that's that's the context of of of, uh, of my question here. Makes sense. Uh, so should I ask the answer this question? So <laughs> let me let me say I think like there's again uh, a lot of a lot of aspects in here. Uh, it's not it's not a it's not a simple thing to to ask. I think thinking about you know scaling scaling uh, the the autonomy and ownership and all that. I think you need very clear uh, uh, objectives. You know, like again, you you I think like in the in the teams themselves, you need very clear principles or constraints. You know what what can the team do or not? Be very very uh, upfront and open about what admits. I am quoting from from this guy called David Marquet that that uh, wrote a book called Turn the Ship Around and says what what admits variability and what doesn't. So as an example, uh, in in lending we have we really really want our teams to be autonomous. And so, like a lot of the autonomy, uh, as an example, is like the team organize their agile, their agile process as they it works for them. You know, that's what's a small example. However, our architectural principles establish that no microservice can talk to each other directly. Everything, every message, every message or communication between microservices needs to be done through an event box, which in, in this case is Kafka. So the teams know very, very well. You know, within those constraints, what can what can they do and what can't they do? You know, it's an agreement that that we all have, and I think like having having that kind of, you know, very established constraints and, and understanding, then the team can can work towards retaining their own autonomy and processes and an identity even, uh, you know, like within within the company because they 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 operate. You know, like they know where they can they can modify and do things themselves and, and what they can. Uh, I think like there's one more thing that it's it's good that I think like in order to scale it, you need to you need to start building like maybe a culture or you need to start putting processes in place, which you know like the P word is like very dreaded amongst like startups and all that. But uh, I I don't know. Sorry, I'm gonna quote <laughs> a lot of books, so uh, apologies for this. So I read I I have reread this book a lot of times called Managing Humans, and and in this the author tells tells a lot about how you end up like you know creating process sometimes to codify your culture, to make you know like we we do like you know peer reviews because it's important for us that you know we we add a, another pair of eyes and share the knowledge and all that. And then that becomes like a policy in your company, and it's not necessarily that you, you drive a process for the process sake, but it's it's a, it's a way to codify culture. And then another way, another author that I'm gonna that I'm gonna quote called Will Larson says that processes are so you can avoid 
dealing with a lot of hard hoc situations, you put a process in place and that take that takes care of a lot of scale. And that's that's a way of like you can start like scaling that kind of, you know, like your your principles, your 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 processes, or better said your culture, you know, like by by doing these codifications. I don't, that's not a word, but you know that that's <laughs> that's how I see it. My yeah. my being incomplete, but uh uh, I would love if, if someone else can add to this. Yeah, uh, actually, I mean, speaking about um, Michael Lopp with sort of managing humans and things like that, and then uh, also talking about sort of codifying things so you don't end up with less ad hoc situations because, like, as as Mitch said, software's hard. Software's really hard. Uh, and, and we often don't talk about it. Uh, and, we, and we'll use these analogies like, oh, it's like building, you know, we'll get this. And, and you start to talk about feature teams and you split by component like you do the building. And it, it doesn't make sense. Like, that's it's it's not analogous to that. Um, and particularly, so one thing is anytime we can remove some of that, oh, no, something happened and it's the bad kind of creative is an awesome thing. So being able to allow teams to have their level of autonomy. And you mentioned a couple of times, Pranit, um, to uh, principles of um, sort of autonomy, uh, ownership, things like this. And I think that goes back to that. When you talk about principles uh, or depending on how your company does it, you're speaking about values, you're speaking about how this comes in because especially as you scale quickly, I mean, you'll, you'll be feeling this right now, even sort of going for that sort of smaller number, um, is everyone often talks about how do we protect our culture, which is insane because you can't. Um, and if you do, you'll end up having the same thing. And the same thing which got you to your 15 people isn't the same thing will get you to 30, 60, 90. What you need to do is to work out how you can actually add to that culture and enhance it across there. And then to to Ben's point, it's what are the things that are so your bedrock or foundation that then you can be agile upon to be able to push these to the decision makers of the right area, which means if you've got your um, values down pat, you've got your principles down pat, this is how we work together, and these will break. Like say, so there'll be edge cases with all of these, and they'll break. And as long as everyone goes into it knowing this model that we've got now, it will work us for eighteen or so months. But it'll break, and we'll work through that. There, you end up setting in this sort of um, to to steal from the marketing folks, this sort of flywheel where because you are inspecting and coming back and doing it again, it's part of that again building the company or building the thing around there. The other part is also we often talk about culture as if it's this sort of uh, holy grail sitting up on a plinth somewhere, um, and it's not. Uh, it's it's really I mean, there's multiple definitions around codifying what you do or it's what you do when no one's looking or it's your standard practices and things like that. And again, for me, this really comes back to what are your principles, what are your values and how do you make sure you hold them and how do you make sure as you're growing rather than protecting that culture, grow your culture. Um, because as you bring people in, if you're protecting it, that's how you end up with really homogenous teams. You end up without that diversity that gets to really good thought. So I'll climb back off the soapbox slightly. <laughs> It's certainly it's a it's an interesting topic around scalability and how you maintain that. And it, it sort of takes me back to uh, earlier in my career, going back what fifteen or so years, um, where I was at a company that was a startup, and that that company then evolved to scale very very quickly. And I think when I joined it as a developer, we only had fourteen people. Um, as I evolved through the ranks and you become the CTO and that sort of stuff, I think at one point I had one hundred and twenty devs, onshore, offshore, just huge. Um, and, and it's weird. It's quite funny, Ben, that you brought up the David Marquette talk because I put that down as single-handedly changing my management career. Um, that whole 
the the thing about the ship and instead of being a single person making all the decisions, you turn it around and you use these people's skills to do it. I think from that point onwards, uh, to me, if I look back on that time at that company, it was purely a, a massive change into to how I did it. And you're sort of giving people the accountability, um, the transparency and the trust really to do what they need to do. Um, rather than trying to do it all, I, I spent years as being the only person that would answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning when things go wrong. Um, I, Changed all that because of those sorts of learnings. That like that talk to me is just fantastic. I still watch it almost every year. Um, for those times where you feel as a leader, you might get a little bit lost or confused about how you're doing, and you just touch base on those sorts of things to to really get back into it and back on track. Um, so it's it's a fascinating thing. But really, sickly, if I was to scale again at that level, I'd be looking at processes. Um, you have a process in place. Processes are there for a reason. I think where you don't have processes, um, that's where things can go haywire. And don't be afraid to fail. Um, it's kind of not trying to steal my thunder from my question coming up later. It, it, a lot of the failures, a lot of the mistakes that either I made or my team made over the years. And I think that's they're the biggest learning points as well. Um, you, you're going to do something wrong. Um, and it's how you learn from those experiences as to what's going to come. I know we, old, in my old teams, we did agile transformations three or four times before it actually worked. Um, I think it, most people would have tried at least the Spotify tribe model because that was cool at Spotify. Um, we tried that, didn't work. It's like do what works and, and don't be afraid to try things. It, it's where you, the fear can hold you back at times. It's about the little A agile versus big A agile. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think uh, it, it, the two points which struck me from Ben Oven and Michelle is, is, Mitch is that uh, one is uh, one is about a codification of the process and, and establishing those boundaries, which I love the steeds to scale, uh, because I'm of the conviction too that uh, there is reasons that there are some controls or constraints or boundaries that are established, which actually free up uh, the, the, uh, the resourcefulness of, of the individuals and the teams. Um, and uh, to, to that point, uh, sort of validating of of the approach what I'm taking and and we're in the uh, initial phases of it to to um, uh, roll it out is uh, something not not of my idea which I've come across in I don't think it's in LinkedIn or in, in Medium article which is they call it as engineering a manifesto uh, which is very much of of kind of a written agreement uh, written agreement which is which has been agreed discussed and debated and agreed upon across different teams uh, which which certainly resonated with me and I think. Uh, seems like what I'm hearing is uh, very much to to try and to uh, to establish those kind of practices and controls and process in that place or in in, in that direction. Uh, so that makes sense. Awesome. Thanks so much, Renee. Then hopefully you've got some good takeaways there and for our listeners as well. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Good books to and read too. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Book list happening. Um, and that will kind of move us on to our next question, which is a little bit different. So not so much around the scaling. It's kind of from Owen. How do you ma best maintain the connection between your people and their purpose, even through the day-to-day -day ministries? So Owen, if you wanted to take it away. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is this is sort of an extension of that same uh, same topic there of um, when you're talking about uh, growing and scaling, and everyone, particularly in the, in the startup world, is you will join a company because you align with the mission and, and that sort of thing. And and what you'll often find, particularly early on, when you when you really talk about these sort of missionary types, is how these people will have a view of the world, and the organisation is trying to help solve for that and maintaining that through there. So it's not so much a how do you make sure that you sort of pulling everyone along necessarily in their company's uh, purpose and where you're going, but how do you really connect the individual purpose through to there and how have you seen that work in the past? Uh, because once you can get to connected your people to your purpose, that's when magic can happen. I mean, whether you do this through sort of strategy or whether you do it through individually or through your leaders of leaders, what ways have you seen this working? Because it, it really, really is magical um, and I think all of us can use a little bit more connectivity. Um, to this. Who's the lucky uh, that is going to answer? Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> now go for it. Go for it. Uh, I think. Uh, sorry. Another. I, I like. I like the purpose. I, I think a lot. Uh, you know, there's this guy called Dan Pink that has this book called Drive, and and I. So I'm, I have no original thoughts, by the way. Just you know, because <laughs> you were wondering. So in this case, like he has this book called Drive, and he says that you know I don't know if it's true or not, but you know things resonate, right? And he said that knowledge workers have three three things that they need to be like engaged and you know like in, in an organization, which is autonomy, uh, mastery, and purpose. You know, and, and this is the things that we're talking about that resonate a lot, you know, with, with uh, software engineers, especially engineers, like they, they love, uh, you know, learning more and, and things like that. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to, to keep. I think one, you need to bring, in my opinion, you need to bring a lot the purpose of the organization to the teams. I've seen like if the, if the company is ultimately helping people achieve something, you need to bring that connection or that 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 part of, of what the company is doing those results and that, that impact visible you need to make that visible to the team because I think like a lot of people see themselves fulfilled on, on those kind of stories you know like when when you connect you know like not, not only you can bring figures and say oh guess what we help this amount of people or we achieved you know like this for example in my case oh you know like we have all this we release a, a product that you know, helps uh, the brokers achieve like better, better uh, meetings with people. It's like, oh, guess what? We we uh, we do this now faster. We do this with less complaints. We do this in, in this case. So that that is one 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 aspect: bringing figures and being iterative, but also like you know, even even getting people to connect to that to that last to that to the end user. You know, like whether it's a company or 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 a, or a customer. Let's go like that because I think that also like it it gives a lot of like uh, you know purpose i'm gonna use this word again like purpose to the person like you know it, it really says, oh you know so whatever i did uh, like you know if people praise your product or even tell ask you questions or even tell you know like i don't really understand this like people people really really connect one thing that i've learned in in in, in the past in, in my last years is that i think like, i used to push a lot for this kind of thing but i ended up like you always like trying to you know get people just going to meetings with customers and things like that in my previous company and one thing that i didn't understand that I that is very very powerful is actually doing that as a group as a team because I think like individual people like would they have some satisfaction or something but I think like when when you get a, a team to actually go and connect with a customer or talk to a to an user or whatever they all share it they all talk it it lasts longer 
And it's like, you know, it, it actually is like a really nice virtual circle because then people start thinking about it and talking and all that. And I think like, so for me, like, you know, I was just trying to make it happen, but didn't understand that, you know, going together was better. Uh, so that is that is one part. Uh, I'm not going to extend on this. Uh, so then other others can answer more. But that that is would be one part, bringing the customer uh, to, to the to the people, to the team so they can you know, see their, their work realized in that way. I would say great points there. And uh, to, to, to add to that, um, one, one thing uh, which in our engineering team specifically we do good and uh, we strive to do better also is context setting uh, for us. And I, I made sure that it is something which is sort of um, uh, seeped in, into the rest of the teams also is uh, for us context is the king. Um, so whatever we do, um, I encourage the teams and the individuals to ask as many questions, as many why questions as we can. Like, what are we doing? I mean, at the end of the day, yes, we do ship uh, features. Yes, we do uh, build services and microservices and solutions and whatnot. But uh, what exactly uh, we are doing it for? Uh, or else it can get mechanical at uh, many a times, uh, given that we, uh, as engineers, we, we get to have this uh, focused zones and we, we tend to tend to not see the big picture of it. And uh, something in my own small scale, I do my best to uh, include the product and the customer success, especially the product teams, to give the context of each and every uh, shippable feature of who it is impacting and why we are doing it. I mean, are we doing it to align with, uh, with certain market trends? Are we doing align uh, to, to um, address some competition out there in the market and in, in those lines? So hence, uh, I believe uh, context is something which is great. Uh, but also there's uh, one more point, which I think in one of our first questions with um, Ben or Oven or Mitchell, someone is talking about, uh, when we talk about purpose, there are two levels to that purpose, which I kind of agree to that. Uh, looking into my own personal experience is that you have this, personal purpose, like I'm, I have my own uh, purpose and you have this business, which is the company-wide purpose. Um, it need not be so, I believe, and I could be wrong, please let me know if that's the case. It need not be so that all the times the personal purpose need not be aligned with the company-wide purpose. Uh, uh, I, I think so, because at the end of the day, uh, it is in my best interest to give the best in, in the job what I do because it helps me to grow. I mean, look at this podcast itself. It is in my best interest to uh, bring me out of the comfort zone to to uh, get to uh, share, but also at the same time learn from peers in this industry. So even though there is an alignment with the company's purpose, but uh, it is it will be much more beneficial and 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 uh, 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 serving the purpose of the individual that uh, if I acknowledge that. Actually, it comes back to me uh, that uh, whatever it is alignment is done in that in that regard, and uh, uh, also there is a play of culture uh, here uh, too uh, when we talk about people and purpose and connecting uh, both uh, too. I mean, yes, we can talk about mission statements, visions, and and throwing up the uh, the, <laughs> the 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 purpose of the company, why we exist, and whatnot. Uh, yes, that is all great. But at the end of the day, here I'm coming for coming to a job where if the environment is uh, there's no sense of camaraderie or brotherhood or whatnot in in the environment, and uh, there are no certain. Uh, it is not something which is vibrant and not fun. I'm uh, I'm leaving ten hours of my I'm putting my ten hours of my day uh, at work uh, <laughs> away from everything. 
that means that needs to mean something to me. Uh, so I think creating those vibrant and and growth oriented environments where um, where there is a sense of belonging and camaraderie at the same time, blameless culture. I would say whatever happens, blameless culture uh, is something which would also help uh, or enable to to uh, establish that connection link between people and purpose, if not directly, but indirectly. I would say. It, it definitely, and jumping on the back of that, Pranith, I think the, the the cultural aspect is pretty key. Um, if you have a small sort of team, I think in terms of maintaining people or maintaining that connection between with the people and the purpose, it's probably a bit easier at that point because I think you have everybody's involved in in like they hear stuff. It's smaller, you have offices and that sort of thing. But as you grow, you, departments get formed. You know that that sort of stuff starts happening, and then you you start to lose, I guess, some of that connection, not only to the purpose, but to the other people in the business. So a key thing for me and what I've learned over the years is, is trying to maintain that level of involvement. Um, you know, tech people are often, they're a peculiar bunch of the best of times. They're not all the same. They're all very different. Um, so making sure that they, that the communication is there, the transparency is there and involving them because sometimes they can come up with the best decisions, um, in particular, and product enhancements and stuff. Maybe they're not the people that are using it, but they're smart. I don't, that's why we employ them. Um, so I think you, that communication and transparency, you just main t- trying to keep on top of that, especially as you do grow, um, because change happens as you grow we, with those departmental walls and all that sort of stuff and internal roadblocks and communication just become can become a problem. So just maintaining that for me is a key aspect of that to to keep that that sort of culture and the purpose to to flow on through. Yeah, I like, and I like to add one. Can I like add one one more thing very very quickly? Because you're talking about ahead. individuals, and this might not be super scalable, but I think like you can you can spread it among the team, but also like you know the teams or, or team leaders understanding the people's like personal values. I think that is also very very powerful. Like not only like it works because when you know the personal values of other people, like you know what moves them, or you know like you know. What, what kind of things, for example, someone might be very customer oriented and another one might be very quality oriented, another one might be money oriented and it's fine. And I think like also like knowing those like can, can help team leaders also sometimes like, you know, uh, draw individual threads towards that, what the company is doing and that can find a specific fulfillment for that person. Sorry, Owen, go. Yeah, no, not at all. So um, hearing that and, and, it's uh, sorry across what everyone said, and, and, and thanks, Dad. Because there's a there's a few things in there. If I could sort of try and just sort of pull on some and threads here. So one thing that I've, I've often said to people working on things is like, as software engineers, our job is not to write code. Um, people will often say that it is, but it's absolutely not. It's to provide value. And as you were saying, Mitch, like you hire smart people to solve problems. And often they'll do it through code because we we, we are so insanely lucky in our industry because everything we do has such high leverage. Um, and so being able to sort of bring that in, and pretty much we're talking around sort of giving people the context because that's really the way they they solve the problems. And, and I think, Ben, that last point really around what are people's individual values and then how can you tie that to where you're trying to go and how can you make sure that they're able to exercise those values or live those values in the right way. Um, super, super powerful, yeah. I think Thanks, just to so jump I- on the individual yeah. values stuff, so, sorry, just to, to keep dragging on this one, mm. I think the other point, not just individual values, I think it's when you also understand what their individual strengths are. Um, mm. Traditionally, when you have people with strengths and weaknesses, you're always trying to get them to improve their weaknesses. 
And sometimes it's actually much better value to not, and you just get them to do the really the things that they're really, really good at, and that can that can keep them out of trouble as such because they're no longer worrying about what they're not good at, and they're just focusing on what they're actually good at. That is a great point. Gives you better so return of investment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> True, 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 true. And thank you everyone for those points. And we'll move on to Ben's question next, um, which is around if you're in charge of engineering teams, how do you influence influence other contributing stakeholders? So Ben, I think you've got a little bit to add on this just to explain where you're going with this one. Uh, so I think like in in you know, if you work with engineering teams, I don't I don't know like your companies, depending on the size and things like that, but you you have multi, if you have cross-functional teams, you have disciplines like you might be in charge of, of, or the team leader might be in charge of individual contributors, engineers, potentially even QAs. But sometimes there are other very, very, you know, influential, influential stakeholders like product or design. Uh, you know, like what? How? How do you? This is my question. Is you know, if you you have maybe direct influence on on the engineers of the team, you can you can you know authority you have uh, on those on those on those people. So then you 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 can exert more control or or you know changes, but how do you deal with with other disciplines like that? You know, like are part of your teams that you know like sometimes like if, if they don't if they don't work well if if, if it's like a it's like a it's like a table right if if one of the one of the one of the legs is not right the right size or something like it's wobbly and you know sometimes like things can fall and things like that. So it's, it's like an ecosystem. So how, how do you deal with this? How, how do you influence other teams? Or what have you seen or experienced or done that is successful in that in this area? My right. If you want to, yeah, Sorry. go for it, Owen. Um, oh, yeah, so so yeah. for me, at the, at the risk of sort of the same dead horse, uh, is really um, bringing it back to sort of values and why we're all here, really around that sort of purpose. So especially as leaders and as engineering leaders, our, our our role really is to make sure that that optimism, that leverage that we've, we've got, we can then make sure that aligns with everyone else. So if we do have an issue with, say, for example, uh, the way that as an organisation we turn up in front of uh, customers through customer success isn't matched to how we're actually building and doing that sort of thing, we need to be actually sure that we can cross that divide. Um, and a lot of this comes back to why do we exist as an org? Uh, so what what is that purpose? How can we connect that? through there because if you've got say a cross-functional team say a product manager and a tech lead and a, a uh, product designer um and so might be a little bit out of whack around oh this is what we want to do from a financial standpoint oh yes but we have all this tech debt that is still accruing and doing all this oh but customers don't really see that why should we care about that rather than ux changes and that sort of thing um to be able to go okay what are we solving for so who who is it as a team that we're solving for here? Now this is probably more true of product teams versus sort of uh, platform teams. Uh, but who are we really solving for, and what's the best way to solve for them? And and the answer to that sometimes, if everybody's actually being honest and transparent, is actually through solving tech debt so you can move faster in the future. And as long as you can communicate that across everyone, everyone's on the same page. A lot of those, it's not necessarily about a sphere of control, but it's about making sure that everyone's sort of walking or rowing in the same direction it's certainly funny like where this particular question because i know when i first saw it in the the previous stuff all i could think of was laugh to myself because it could be as controversial as your tabs versus spaces <laughs> um in terms of how people could actually take it on and, and in particular the, the point that it is it's because it's a, something that i'm working with now in my teams is 
the integration of, say, your UX designers into your agile processes and that sort of stuff because it brings up that very big debate around, oh, design has to be waterfall or, or however it is. And it's fundamentally, I think, it, it, you can use any process to make anything work. It just depends on what's going to work for your team. Um, but I think with your cross-functional teams, and I, I'm a big believer personally in the Scrum process, um, even though we might, my teams now don't do Scrum religiously, it's Scrum but. Because it's Scrum, but we change it the way we like. Um, having the the key thing for me is for those teams is to have all that they need to do in order to actually you know, meet their goals, and that is you have your QAs and your designers and your devs and your project managers, if you have them, BAs. They're all in the one team, and they're all trying to achieve that team goal. Um, I think that part to me is probably the easier side of that that particular problem. If you can maintain that and keep people aligned and the, the key thing for me as well, there is like doing proper retrospectives and actually trying to improve the things that they don't do well. Um, quite often you get to re- retrospectives and it's a box ticking exercise, um, but actually wanting to improve and, and that sort of stuff. I think that, that helps there. Um, but the, 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 key, the other side of it is around that sort of product management and stakeholder engagement. And that's a difficult one because that, that goes back to, I think some of the earlier conversation, um, where you have people who think tech's easier and it's not. Um, they think that your your this so-and-so project, which in their head is a, a one-sentence requirement, they don't realise that that one-sentence requirement can turn into you know, a 40-page document if you let it. Um, so they just expect it to be done in two weeks. And it, realistically, it's about having engaging and honest conversations with those people, with all the people in the room that need to facilitate that um, and I, when I've managed to do that with those conversations in place, it's made things easier. It's not certainly not made things perfect because you're always going to have people disagree. Um, and I know with the the work that, that my teams do now is sometimes we don't have time on our side. We have hard deadlines that just have to be done and you, you sort of have to coach people off the cliff and say, no, no, we do need to do this no matter what it takes. That sort of, you need to be able to do that. Um, and they'll blame the stakeholder because it's always the stakeholder's fault. But if you can manage to have those conversations and and try and lead them with a key thing is empathy, um, I think that goes a long way to to helping with that influence. Um, if they can walk a mile in each other's shoes, it goes a long way to maintaining that sort of relationship. I think that's uh, great points actually by Mitch and Owen around the influence, but also at the same time to um, to have to do some retros and having some empathy. Uh, something which I can absolutely relate to Ben's question when I when I read this question that uh, yeah I've been through the journey in the last four years although in my own little <laughs> small scale with the product and engineering here um, one is uh, one counter question to that is what's the driver or the motivation to that question when 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 we say that uh, how can the engineering have influence over product and design teams what's the motivation to that uh, the reason for that is uh, i've learned it in my own little hard ways in the last couple of years that um, that this is something which i think when there is a design coming onto my plate uh, from the product and design teams the i think that that could be better uh, this is what we can do why don't we do this way uh, so and i found out many at times there is a huge amount of resistance from the product and design team uh, clearly i miss the empathy part here at this point but what i've re- <laughs> what i've realized is that uh, the product has done a uh, uh, heavy investment in terms of time and energies to uh, to come up with the designs, working with the design teams uh, in collaboration with the client success, with the stakeholders, and with the, with the, with the customers out there. Um, what 
can I, how can I best align myself and the engineering team to produce the results in an optimum? That is one. But also at the same time, we do voice out our own um, uh, disagreements or our own thoughts. What I learned is, in terms of influencing a product or even any cross-functional team for that matter, uh, I started uh, started uh, looking the direction of enrolling them into the decision making. So even though it is something which I might disagree, which I think there is another way or which I would like to prove that I am right on this table, <laughs> um, I will. I actually love to en enroll the teams onto that. When, for instance, tomorrow growth, growth team comes to me saying that, um, no, we are an onboarding an enterprise-geared customer. We would love to, uh, can can the platform withstand the load and the, and the stress of the usage or, or uh, whatnot. Same goes to the product too. My job is from the technical front is to educate them. I think education is one piece which is absolutely important too, um, is to educate them and is to uh, highlight the risks and assumptions of, yep, we can do that. Yes, given the time, we can absolutely do that. But these are the risks and these are the assumptions what we're making uh, to achieve that. Does that work for you? Um, are you uh, is are you willing to accept the risk? And if the business is accepting the risk, and if they're if they're well aware that this is what we are getting into by by pushing this station or by getting this agreement, I think that's kind of a win-win. Even though there is a slight disagreement, but still, I've done my part to let my business, uh, my, my cross-functional teams, be aware of what the engineering uh, uh, um, uh, output would be or what it entails to to achieve this particular outcome. So I think enrollment, education, and and um, some sort of um, uh, agreement in terms of highlighting the risks and assumptions would go a long way, allowing them to choose and make decisions at the same time that that also uh, relieves my burden, but also uh, hopefully um, uh, allow them to perceive that well, I'm in control. I'm 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 the ownership owner of of this uh, team, so hence I can make decisions. And something else on the back of that, just, just um, something I've had a conversation with a few of the sort of my leaders and things over over time, is one of the superpowers of really good engineers is being able to look around the corner and working out when things are going to break. Um, and if you've got any really really good engineer, you'll talk to them, and 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 they've got that sort of face of consternation, and and because the default mode has got them to be really really successful, is to be able to say, oh that won't work because of X Y Z. Here are the risks. Here's how we're going to do it but I can work around it. And one of the things to, to back up sort of Mitch and Princeton there of to be able to, how do you have these conversations? How do you inform them around the risks? How do you, how do you work on this? Is to change that conversation because everyone else, particularly in the, um, in sort of our, our go-to-market teams, our product teams, all them, are really, really wanting to be opportunistic. How can we approach the market in the right way? And if we can start to treat, teach our engineers to communicate slightly differently to rather than, oh no, we can't do this, but look at the magic I've made is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do this and we need to worry about X, Y, Z as well. It actually completely changes the conversation. Um, so when it comes to rather than necessarily that sort of values line I was talking about, but individually the way people talk about this is turn the no buts into yes ands, even just externally. Because internally as engineers, those no buts, as I said, it's a superpower. Being able to look around the corner and see when things are going to fall over is why um, one of the big reasons why good engineers are so hard to find. But if then if they can communicate that to, yeah, this is great, and here are the things we need to sort out to do it, it completely changes the influence conversation. I think that that's a that's a great point on that communication and language that that engineers can use. It, it takes me back. Worked with an agile coach years ago, and one of the things that he trained myself and the team on was around how you communicate estimates 
And when you communicate those estimates to a, a business stakeholder or someone, you'll say, this would take me two weeks to do. Their immediate process is to go, bang, I'm going to do, you're going to do this for me in two weeks. Great. Two weeks, we can sell it. But quite often, that's not the case because you haven't taken into account that two weeks worth of effort might be over four weeks. And you start ch- and you get you get the guys to start changing, or girls, um, to use different language around how they communicate that in terms of the, the probable estimate where you can have a, a nano estimate, which is your best case scenario, a catastrophic estimate, which is your worst case scenario, everything's gone wrong, and then you land it, you're, you're probable, and the, the, the conversation goes from absolute best case, I can do it for you in two weeks, worst case, it might take 14 weeks, but I think we're going to land mm-hmm. at that six-week mark. And that instead of it being a, a no and then you start having failures because you don't meet the two weeks, it's a much softer conversation, I think, and more palatable as well for to the stakeholders because they understand, oh, catastrophic. That sounds that yeah, I like the I like the normal one. That's much better. And it's just a, a way of communicating. And the more you can do that, the more influence you can have on those guys as well. So I'm just gonna take uh all of what you got, uh for example, I think I think part of, of what, what you said about having the, the the teams need to be very clear on, on what the objective is. You know, like everyone needs to know like where we're going or we're all in the same in the same boat. Uh, you know, as as Brian said also like education, uh education and you know like for, for the teams to to kind of like know and also enrolling people earlier too. Like that was was another 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 one of the points. I, I don't remember who said it. Uh, and one of the things that Mitch said, like, you know, having the empathy in the retros. I think from the bottom up, what I've learned that it works really well, yeah, I'm talking for bottom up, is that I've seen, I used to have this boss that I absolutely respect and love, but he used to have this this notion that said, oh, you know, there's always going to be a tension between product and engineering. And, and I actually learned through the years with great team leaders that I work with that that actually doesn't need to be the case. I've, I've seen that the best, uh, part the best uh, results come from a really really uh, good partnership between. So now I talk always about partnership between products and and, and team leaders and designers. That, that's like that is like they all one 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 of the team leaders that I that I that I that I work with right now. He said, you know, when people talk to me and ask me a question or the or the product manager, you know, like uh, we all we are different people, but the answer should be the same. You know, like they are so well connected that, you know, like they 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 act as one. They're so united. So I think like one of the things that to me to 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 gain that influence, but influence is nothing virus is more like, you know, contribute and, and work together is having that partnership, like the empathy that that Mitch was so saying. And and one last thing, if you go a little bit higher of the of the of the chain and, and you have like leads of leads, you know, like PM, senior PMs or lead PMs and things like that. One thing that I also learned is that, like, make them your team, you know, like have constant communication with them. So then they, you all know what your objectives are and what your challenges are. And then you can always say, well, do we have different, different objectives, you and I? No, we shouldn't. So then, like, how do we either, either we clarify our assumptions from each other or we make one, you know, we made one, one object, not an assumption, where you make one objective to say, like, well, okay. If we are not aligned, we we don't intersect. Then we should we should meet in the middle and and like see we're going because ultimately the objective is you know like the business objective providing value, et cetera, et cetera. A really great question, thanks, Ben. And really, just by the sounds, it comes down to how important just communication really is. Um, for 
for the end of today, we will have got Mitch's question, another great one and definitely really relevant to the current climate at the moment. So that is, how do you deal with teams paralyzed by the fear of failure, especially in the current climate where companies are cutting staff or closing shop altogether? Yeah, I was thinking of this because it's one of those ones, I don't know if you guys scroll LinkedIn regularly, but you see almost every few days on LinkedIn, there's somebody saying, oh, I've just been let go. And it's just like, that sort of stuff, I think, it's sad for those guys, obviously, but then you start thinking about your own teams and how they're perceiving it and, and and that sort of stuff and how, as a leader, you can actually try and mitigate some of the risk in terms of a team becoming paralysed by fear because they're starting to worry about those external influences or sometimes even internal. Um, I mean, examples of, of the internal sort of things is people being scared because to be a part of a release or a, a product feature because they, they got in trouble. Um, a business stakeholder yelled at them or something and made them feel bad. Um, and then the, the symptoms that then flow on are you, your velocity starts being impacted, the releases start pushing out, and they get stuck into the, the spiral of death in terms of just slowing everything down. And as a leader, how, how what steps or how do you take, what do you do to try and help turn that turn the ship around? Um, as, as we were talking about earlier, it's like that's where your ship might be starting to sink. Um, or, or it's being weighed down by these anchors that are holding everybody back. And you know, what steps are there that, that you do take um, or principles that you do use to try and, and turn that around? Um, to, to sort of steal from Ben, which is kind of apt because I don't have an original thought either, uh, and then to, to <laughs> lean on another book recommendation, so Patrick Colenzioni's uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Um, great framework here to sort of how do you go through this because realistically what we're talking about here is there's a lot of fear in the market. And if that fear in the market is then creeping into the way that people communicate, and especially even with a really long-running team, um, that can really, really be destructive. Uh, so when we're going through this, it's – it's really to, especially as a leader, now it's going to be a bit hand wavy rather than very concrete advice, but really build in the trust. Um, so, and when we talk about trust here, it's not a, oh yeah, Mitch said he would deliver X on date Y, so he has done it. It's much more, oh, I know what Mitch is about and I know what's going on and I know there's other things going in the market. Therefore, he's reacted in a different way. Why has this happened? And what you can build on then is being able to go through, okay, we've got that trust. We can we can talk to each other. We know what's going on, which means that we can actually have really healthy conflict. Because a lot of the things you're talking about with the fear-based stuff there of, oh, a stakeholder yelled at me or this and stuff is because the stakeholder is sort of not a person at that stage. They are the stakeholder or in air quotes, the business, uh, which is insane, by the way, because a business a collection of people don't think they're all the business. Anyway, um, to, because they are removed from that, there, there's that lack of trust there. So you can't actually really have healthy conflict, which then means because there's no, that lack of healthy conflict, commitment becomes really, really hard uh, because people can't necessarily commit things. They don't want to be part of a feature because then they're worried about this conflict, which is nasty, and that, that turns into there. And if they're not committing to things, then you don't have any accountability for it. And if you can't have accountability for it, how can you then tie that through to when you're talking about velocity, when you're talking about business metrics, talk about any of this kind of stuff. So for me, being able to take that back to sort of first principles, and this is helpful, you mentioned um, agile transformations earlier, going through particularly that sort of um, storming phase, really helpful because then you can ground that back down to what are we here to do? Therefore, the trust and have the right conflicts. And what that manifests as, as a leader or leader of leaders, is if you know that these things are happening in the market, you can see, oh, five companies just closed their doors. Cool. Um, you're able to have the right conversation and say, look, this is where we are. 
here's what I know of the future. I don't know everything. Here's what I know. Here's this, which means people can then trust you as well because you've turned up and to get a, a little bit sort of inspirational poster, being your authentic self, because then that, that resonates through everything else you've built throughout the team or teams. I think uh, there are many points which we touched upon in our earlier conversations and to the points of what Owen has added us. It seems like everything is uh, interrelated, interconnected, all the conversations, what we're having. Um, one thing which uh, which I call the point from by Owen is uh, honesty. I think uh, being a leader, if, if uh, I can step in and I can be the first to have a honest conversation and put it out there that, hey, uh, there, there are some market forces and which we don't have control of, but what we do have control of is uh, internal within our teams, within our companies and how we can, how we how we work together as an, in, a, in, a, in a certain operating environment and how we can deliver. So that's something which is in our control. And as again, Avin said, uh, I don't know anything about the future, but this is what I, uh, I, I receive as an update from my boss and from the business. They have, I see uh, uh, there is uh, there is a there is a healthy runway for up until this time, and then we can discuss further when the time comes. And that is one. Uh, but also to to, to your point, uh, Mitch, about um, uh, the the failures per se, as, as you quoted, is is uh, be it is showing up in the velocities or in sprint velocities or in deliverables or in um, production bugs, etc. Um, my counter uh, or my my thinking to that would be is it something which existed already and it is, and is only been triggered by these by these external market forces which is mean, which means that is it as culture and action which is already existed in some degree or to, to to some at some level within the teams already and which only got triggered by some external forces or by external trends here uh, if that's the case i think that is uh, that is uh, a, a great Opportunity to to uh, review and and come together as a team to uh, to to resolve it. I, I would say uh, the other one is um, uh, having 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 dealt with this, but also th there is a multi pronged approach. I would I would take uh, one is again stepping into into myself step, stepping into the into the role uh, to have a honest conversation with the team, but also at the same time. Maybe by then my engineering manifesto is out there already in the team, so I can leverage that manifesto. Say, hey, we have codified these processes and methodologies, and we agreed together that we'll have this blameless culture. So this wouldn't impact this, or this wouldn't the outside will not influence inside. So hence, whatever it is, we will deal as per our codified standards and processes, which is part of our manifestos and whatnot. Uh, so that reassurance would, uh, I believe, uh, I would say not just once, but I would say there will be a constant reassurance going to, to be held uh, uh, for for some some period of time for the, for it to seep in and for it to uh, to, to be digested by the teams. Uh, hopefully that will that will uh, uh, they'll come out of it. So that's that's those are some thoughts which I have on that. So just to add a little bit to what Owen and Pranita were saying, I think I think yeah you know, like being proactive, communicate, give clarity, you know, especially like if people have uh, concerns, like I think like one one good thing is like dedicate or make yourself available for anyone that wants to talk to you. Because I think this is the key moments of, of a leader is like providing this clarity and, and, uh, and you know, like a clear assumptions because sometimes people think, oh, this is going to happen. No, no, like let me, let me tell you. So if you can do it in a summary way, like that's great. But I think some people might, 
come to you and, and like, you know, require your ear. And I think listening to people is, is very good. I think if, if the company, depending also like what's the situation of the company, I've seen that one, one I experienced a layoff in 2019. I was not part of the people laid, laid off, but I, I was part of the company. And one of the things that, that was very, very beneficial after that was that the team, the engineering team became less isolated from the revenue part of the business. So I think like that, that connection, like, you know, similar to what I say, like, you know, you connect the, the customer or the end user to the team. I think you should also maybe bring all that, that revenue, uh, you know, part of the business to the team and, and try to make connections. Because then as well, like there's there's part when you can also even involve the team, like making accountable, like, you know, in, in this company, I remember that part of the, 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 the what we could do as, as engineers to cut costs were like, oh, let's look at all our AWS, uh, you know, uh, expenditure, you know, like are there are things here that we don't need, like, let's look at our tools, like, you know, not necessarily like you're going to just get rid of everything, but I think like you can even give a little bit of control uh, to 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 the team to to help them you know like be feel better and also even even if you pivot them towards towards a more revenue oriented you know tasks for example uh, you know for for a temporary uh, period uh, you can also like you know keep them very close about you know how how their contribution is is like helping the the the, the business go through you know like uh, turbulent times yeah definitely I mean the that's all sort of great points that you guys have made there. It's the whole fear thing can be debilitating to teams and, and trying to work out ways. I think honesty is absolutely spot on there. You need to have that honest or be, be honest with your teams and being available to them um, to have those conversations, to be able to deal with any of the issues that arise. Um, an example I would use is something I've seen cause sort of fear-based problems years ago with a team we had, for some reason, it's the whole departmental clashes where a sales department, they get KPIs based on sales. What do engineering teams get KPIs on? And someone came up with this bright idea. Well, all right, if you guys have, you know, less than two severity ones and it was a benchmark based on production issues. So once you institute that and you tie that to money, so performance bonuses or something could be hit by that, it just cripples them. Because no one wants to make a mistake anymore. Uh, where that didn't last very long, thankfully. Um, but it's like the key thing for me, for their in particular failure, is not embracing failure to an extent. I like to to work with teams and work individuals as well. In terms of if you make a mistake, that's okay. I've got your back. Um, you make the same mistake twice, then we probably have a problem because you haven't learned from it. But you know, having their back when those things do happen sort of does distill a lot of that fear. Um, because when they fear, when they are fearful, they're not going to be innovative, and and that obviously affects the the bottom line and and the product development as well. Going back to that, David Marquette, he said, you know, when you start, you know, like making being being afraid of making mistakes, you stop like reaching for excellence. I have I have another a little bit crude analogy that I say, if you're afraid of stepping in dog poo, then like you stop looking at the stars. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. A very, a very great analogy. <laughs> yeah, and this links back to uh, Pete's blameless culture as well, because if people are worried mm. about making mistakes, they're fellow blame, and, and that's what that is. There is it's KPI based blame rather than uh, anything else, which is often worse because it's that sort of institutional fear rather than uh, actual relationship driven. 
100%. And some amazing insights, everyone. I think we've covered a lot for today's discussion. So we'll leave the conversation here for today. But a massive thank you to Mitch, Owen, Pranith and Ben for joining me in today's discussion on effective leadership. And we'll see you next time of the installment of the Evolution Exchange. Thank you.